This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. Years ago, I watched a TV show with fascination as the host, a man by the name of James Burke, started with a single item, and then over the course of the next hour showed its link to something else, then that to something else, until after a dozen seemingly disconnected links, it arrived at some marvel of modern convenience in daily life. The show was called Connections, and it's one of the several things that stoked my love of history. So, we start this episode with someone who, at first blush, well, has nothing to do with where we'll end. But Joachima Fior provides a single piece of a complex system that led to one of the biggest controversies and surprises of the European Middle Ages. Joachim was an Italian lad who, after a trip to the Holy Land, returned to Italy to join the Cistercian monks. He was ordained a priest in 1168 and in 1177 was made abbot of a monastery in Carrazzo. He stayed for 14 years and then left to start a new order in Fiore. Joachim is one of many who would never have been known to history were it not for his innovative ideas about history and eschatology. He set forth all of history as belonging to three overlapping circles. The age of the father roughly corresponds to the time of the Old Testament. The age of the son he calculated to be 42 periods of 30 years each, starting with the birth of Christ and running until the year A.D. 1260. Then would commence the age of the spirit, which would be marked by a complete revamping of human society. The church would succeed in its task of world evangelism, not only seeing most people saved, but infiltrating human institutions to affect worldwide societal reform that would make the current system of the medieval church hierarchy useless, pointless. What need is there of a special priesthood when every believer possessed the same awareness of God and compliance to his perfect will? While Joachim had many supporters, the Pope, Cardinals, and Archbishops, <laughs> they weren't real thrilled with his ideas and quashed them in 1263 at the Synod of Arles. Joachim's theories of history was developed against the backdrop of that long road to reform that we spent so many episodes on in season one. And just because his ideas were officially quashed, that didn't mean that everyone immediately erased them from their minds. Just the opposite. Those ideas continued on in the thinking of many, especially in a branch of reform-minded Franciscans. If the current system of church hierarchy was about to pass away in favor of a more democratic system, well, why not move towards that now? Why wait for it? You see, over the previous couple centuries, the papacy had made itself into a secular government, claiming a divine mandate to do so. Religious doctrine was merged with political theory. When the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II asserted the sovereignty of the state and refused Pope Innocent IV's political claims, he was declared a heretic. But political rulers are usually able to find loyal priests upset with their ecclesiastical superiors who are more than happy to make a countercharge of heresy against the Pope. Politics makes strange bedfellows. So it's no wonder that the political tug-of-war between popes and kings would lead to outright combat. When at the dawn of the 14th century, Pope Pontifus VIII issued the famous 
unum sanctum, claiming that every human being had to obey him to be saved, and then went on a crusade against any and all church officials that opposed him, King Philip IV of France decided, well, it was time for some Pope smackdown. Philip seized Boniface and incarcerated him. Commoners rallied and managed to free him from the king's guards, but Boniface was a broken man and died shortly after. To justify the harsh treatment the Pope had been given, Philip started up a posthumous investigation into heresy. The next Pope, Clement V, managed to end the hearings, but forever lived under the shadow and threat of Philip's wrath. That became painfully clear by his participation in one of the most spectacular heresy actions of the Middle Ages. Unlike most such investigations, it didn't involve a single individual or even a small group. It took on an entire religious order. The poor Knights of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon, better known as the Knights of the Temple or the Templars. The Crusades of the 12th century didn't create the three main military orders of Templates, Hospitallers, and Teutonic Knights. But the Crusades did certainly provide them the boost that made them the fixtures of European society that they became. The Templars were founded in 1128. Their rule was penned by the famous Bernard of Clairvaux. While all three orders have fascinating histories, the Templars were by far the most colorful, the richest, and most powerful of the three orders. They were formed to protect Christians that were making pilgrimage to the Holy Land and seemingly served that purpose well in their early days. But they were brutally suppressed in a spectacular police action in Europe later. While the real reason for the suppression was political, with a heavy dose of greed on Philip's part, the official charge against them was heresy. As with so many other persons and movements that run afoul of the official church hierarchy, the history of the Templars is obscured by a thick coat of dubious charges. From the 12th century, the Templars were in a heated competition with the Hospitallers for relevance in the Holy Land. You see, the Templars had originally laid claim to Jerusalem and its environs, while the Hospitallers settled into other Crusader-occupied regions. When the Muslims reconquered Jerusalem, the Templars tried to take over some of the Hospitaller holdings, and blood was spilled. The Templars weren't really able to get a foothold at any place other than Acre, and so they returned to Europe. Rumor had it that in Jerusalem, well, they had stumbled on a vast hoard of ancient treasure and were now fabulously rich. No one had actually seen this treasure, but it became common knowledge that the Templars were now the custodians of King Solomon's vast wealth. Now, for sure, the Templars had amassed much wealth in their conquest of Jerusalem, but the rumor of untold treasure, that was a fiction. What kept the rumor alive was the fact that the Templars had become bankers of the extended realms taken in the First Crusade. They set up hundreds of depositories of their wealth all across Europe and the Near East, with the main centers in London and Paris. As the crusading cause progressed, some European nobles headed out on crusade would place their assets under Templar management until their return. It wasn't long before the Templars were stewarding vast sums. In 1150, they began issuing letters of credit for pilgrims that were headed to the Holy Land. Before leaving, a pilgrim would deposit his valuables at one of the hundreds of Templar forts and receive a document marking the value of their deposit. When they arrived at their destination, 
They then exchanged this document at one of the Templar forts there for treasure of equal value. It was an early form of banking and was most likely the first official system to use checks. It vastly enhanced the safety of pilgrims since it made them less appealing targets by bandits. The Templars set up financial networks all across Christendom. They secured large tracts of land in Europe and the Near East, which they turned into farms, vineyards, and built impressive fortifications as bastions of strength to house their wealth and as symbols of their power, all of which added to the sense that the Templars were worth trusting in to keep your valuables safe while you were away crusading. They got into manufacturing, they got into trade and the import and export business, they had their own fleet of ships, and at one point they owned the island of Cyprus. Some have called the Knights Templar history's first multinational corporation. In 1305, Pope Clement V sought to effect a reconciliation between the feuding Templars and Hospitallers. He invited the leaders of both orders to meet and hammer out a compromise that would see them merge into a single order, but neither of them was interested. Still, Clement persisted. A year later, the Grand Masters were set to meet with the Pope once again. Jacques de Molay, the Templar leader, arrived first. The Hospitaller leader, de Villeray, was delayed for several months. So, while he was delayed, Molay and the Pope got to talking about a scandal that had spun up two years before due to the charges of an ousted Templar knight. This knight, in prison awaiting a death sentence, shared a cell with a French adventurer and confided to him some of the secret and scandalous shenanigans that Templars engaged in. When the adventurer was released, he made his way to the King of Aragon's court where he reported what he'd supposedly heard. The King of Aragon rejected the report as the scurrilous claims of a Montebank. But the charges of heresy and immorality in the order, well, they were just too juicy not to spread. And spread they did, though most people dismissed them as absurd. You know how it is. You hear some juicy piece of gossip and you dismiss it because it can't possibly be true, but you got to repeat it. The Pope brought these charges up with de Molay now as they waited for de Villeray to arrive. He wanted to see what the Templar leader would say about them. You see, Pope Clement was beholden to Francis King Philip IV and knew that the king was in deep debt to the Templars for loans that he'd taken out to fund a military campaign against the English. Seeing an opportunity in de Molay's reply to the charges, Pope Clement then invited Philip to use his resources to investigate the claims that had been made against the Templars. France's aging King Philip IV desperately wanted the rumor of vast Templar treasure to be true. Well, that desire morphed into a convinced belief the Templars were sitting on a secret hoard of piles of gold and precious gems. Keeping it secret could only mean one thing. They planned to use it for nefarious purposes. And what could be more nefarious than overthrowing the crown and taking up the rule of France? After all, the Templars were a well-organized fighting force. They had been dispossessed as rulers in the Middle East. Being a royal, having tasted power, Philip projected his own political avarice onto the Templars and assumed that they had hatched a conspiracy to take over. It was just a matter of time. And so he decided to strike first and pressed the Pope into initiating heresy charges against the Templars. He was more than happy to provide the muscle to investigate the claims. But this was at a time when a charge of heresy, while certainly damning, was also coming more frequently, and it didn't have the same 
shock value it once did. So Phil doubled down and added to the charge of heresy the accusation that the Templars practiced gross immorality. Particularly damning at that time was the charge of rampant homosexuality. The Templars had no means by which to refute the charges. Being a rather secretive organization, they had no public relations program or propagandists to counter Philip's charges. What sealed their doom was Philip's clever manipulation of Pope Clement V, who at that time ruled from the French city of Avignon to assign the Inquisition to investigate the charges. In October of 1307, on Friday the 13th, Philip ordered the Temple Grandmaster Jacques de Molay and dozens of Templars arrested. Templars were accused of blasphemous initiation rites in which they spat on the cross, denied Christ, and engaged in sodomy. They were charged with financial corruption, fraud, and conspiracy. As the Inquisition went to work, they secured numerous confessions that substantiated the charges. But then it became known that torture was being liberally applied. The common people, shocked at the initial reports and admission of Templar wickedness, they quickly turned against the Inquisitors when their methods for securing those confessions became known. But public opinion had little impact on either the king or the pope. Yielding to Philip's pressure, Clement issued a papal bull just a month after de Molay's arrest, instructing all European rulers to arrest Templars and seize their assets. It seems at this point, Clement began to have second thoughts, and decided to help the Templars if he could. And so he had the Inquisition stand down, called for a special papal hearing to determine the Templars' guilt or innocence. So now, free of the torture, most Templars recanted their previous confessions. Philip saw the moment slipping away, and in 1310 maneuvered his hand-selected archbishop into the lead of the investigation. The previous confessions were then used to have dozens of Templars burned at the stake in Paris. Philip threatened to have the Pope removed by force of arms if he didn't go along with his campaign against the Templars, so Clement agreed to disband the order. At the Council of Vienna in 1312, he issued a papal bull titled Vox in Excelso, which dissolved the Knights Templar. Another bull assigned Templar assets to the Hospitallers after Philip, of course, took his healthy slice on the sly. The elderly Templar Grandmaster Jacques de Molay, who confessed under torture, retracted his confession, as did a number of other Templar leaders. But they were all condemned and burned at the stake in Paris in 1314. De Molay was defiant to the bitter end. He asked to be tied in such a way that he could face the Cathedral of Notre Dame and then held his hands in the posture of prayer. It's reported that as the flames rose up around him, he called out, quote, God knows who's wrong and who has sinned. Soon a calamity will occur to those that have condemned us to death, unquote. Pope Clement died a month later, and Philip was killed in a hunting accident before the year was out. Remaining Templars were arrested and tried, but few of them were convicted. It's interesting that in 2001, a manuscript dated to 1308 called the Chinon Parchment was discovered in the Vatican secret archives by Barbara Frail. It had been filed in the wrong place back in 1628. It's a record of a Templar trial, and it indicates that Pope Clement absolved the Templars of all heresies in 1308 before disbanding the order four years later. Today, the Roman Catholic Church regards the persecution of the Templars as unjust, 
and that there was nothing errant in either the order's rule or practice. It regards Pope Clement as having been forced by the machinations of King Philip, who, by the way, was Clement's relative. (laughs) 